0: Welcome to the 354th of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we'll continue with South with Scott by Edward Evans, who was part of Scott's fabled Fatal South journey. Then we carry on with the mysteries of Three John Silent stories. So, let's head off to that white continent. Chapter 6. Settling Down to the Polar Life The following members were selected for the depot journey which Captain Scott elected to lead in person. Wilson, Bowers, Atkinson, Oates, Cherry Garrard, Gran, Mears, Ford, Crean, Keahane and myself. It was decided to take eight pony sledges and two dog sledges, together with about a ton of pony food, sledging rations, dog biscuit and paraffin to a position on the Great Ice Barrier as far south as we could get before the first winter set in. This decision was arrived at by Scott after consultation with Oates and others, and, as will be seen by reference to the list of those chosen for the journey, none of the scientific staff were included except Wilson himself. The ponies selected were either those in the best condition, or the weaker beasts, which, from Oates' viewpoint, would hardly survive the rigours of the winter. Apart from the animals picked for this journey, we had nine beasts left to be taken care of by the little Russian Anton, and the trusty Blashley, whose mechanical knowledge and practical ability were needed to help get the base station going. On January the 3rd, I was sent on board with all the sledges, including two for a western geological reconnaissance, and a small spare sledge for use in a case of a breakdown or accident to the depot-laying people. By this time no ice remained in the bay north of Cape Evans, and the transport out to the Terra Nova had perforce to be done by boat. I was glad to have this chance of working out the errors and rates of our chronometer watches, and although I was up at 5am, I could not resist having a long yarn, which continued far into the night, with those never-to-be-forgotten friends of mine. Campbell, Pennell, Rennick and Bruce, the worthy and delightful lieutenants of the expedition. Like little Bowers, Pennell and Rennick have made the supreme sacrifice, and only Campbell, Bruce and myself remain alive today. January 24th was a busy day. Captain Scott was fetched from the shore directly after breakfast, and at 10am the ship left for Glacier Tongue to shadow, as it were, the string of white Siberian ponies which were being led round over the fast ice in the bay to the southward of Cape Evans. On arriving at the tongue, Pennell selected a nice natural wharf to put his ship alongside, and this done I got a picketing line out onto the ice for the horses and then got the sledges onto the glacier. It is as well here to describe the glacial tongue briefly, since frequent reference will be made to that icy promontory in this narrative. Glacier Tongue lies roughly six miles to the south-southeast of Cape Evans, and is a remarkable spit of ice jutting out when last surveyed for four miles into McMurdo Sound. Sounding showed that it was afloat for a considerable part of its length, and as Scott found subsequently, a great portion of it broke adrift in the autumn or winter of 1911, and was carried by the winds and currents of the Sound to a position 40 miles west-northwest of Cape Evans, where it grounded a huge flat iceberg two miles in length. Glacier Tongue was an old friend of mine, for it was here in the 1902-4 relief expedition that the crew of the Little Morning dumped twenty tons of coal for the Discovery to pick up on her way northward when the time came for her to free herself from the besetting ice which held her prisoner off Hut Point. The ponies were marched to their tethering place without further accident than one falling through and into the sea. But he was rescued none the worse. Oates showed himself to advantage in managing the ponies. He was very fond of telling us that a horse and a man would go anywhere, and I believe if we sailormen had had the bad taste to challenge him, we could have hoisted one of those Chinese Ma up to the crow's nest. We all had tea on board, and then, after checking the sledge loads and ascertaining that nothing had been forgotten, the depot party started out with full loads and marched away from Glacier Tongue for seven miles, when our first camp was made on the sea ice. To commence with, I went with Mears and Number One Dog Sledge. The dogs were so eager and excited that they started by bolting at a breakneck speed, and in spite of all that we could do, took us over the glacier edge onto the sea ice. The sledge capsized and both Mears and I were thrown down somewhat forcibly. We caught the sledge, however and got the dogs in hand after their initial energy had been expended. Scott and Wilson managed their dog sledge better as Mears gave them a quieter team. It was about nine o'clock when we camped, Mears, Wilson, Scott and I sharing a tent. Uncle Bill was cook, and I must say the first sledging supper was delightful. We went back to Glacier Tongue the next day to relay the fodder and dog biscuit which was to be depoted. "'We'd brought the provisions for depot along the eve before. "'I went in with Mears and Nelson, who had come out on ski, "'to speed the parting guest. "'We had a rare treat all riding in on the dog-sledge at a great pace. "'Had lunch on board, and then Captain Scott gave us an hour or two to ourselves, "'for it was the day of farewell letters, "'everybody sitting round the wardroom table, sucking pens or pencils, "'looking very wooden-faced and nonchalant, despite the fact that we were most certainly writing to our nearest and dearest, sending through our letters an unwritten prayer that we would be spared after steadfastly performing our allotted tasks with credit to our flag, and with credit to those at whose feet we yearn to lay the laurels we hoped to win. Even as I wrote my farewell letters, Captain Scott, Wilson, Bowers and Nelson found time to write to my wife. Scott's letter may well be included here it shows his thoughtfulness and his consideration. Quote January 25th, 1911 Glacier Tongue, McMurdo Sound Dear Mrs Evans, I thought you might be glad to have a note to tell you how fit and well your good man is looking. His cheery optimism has already helped me in many difficulties and at the present moment he's bubbling over with joy at the delights of his first sledge trip. He will have told you all the news and the ups and the downs of our history to date and you will have guessed that he has always met the misfortunes with a smile and the successes with a cheer so that very little remains for me to say except that I daily grow more grateful to you for sparing him for this venture. I feel that he is going to be a great help in every way and that it will be going hard if with so many good fellows we should fail in our objects. Before concluding I should really like to impress on you how little cause you have for anxiety. We've had the greatest luck in finding and establishing our winter quarters, and if I could go shopping tomorrow, I should not want to buy to add to our comfort. We're reaping a full reward for all those months of labour in London, in which your husband took so large a share. If you picture us after communication is cut off, it must be a very bright picture, almost a scene of constant revelry. With your husband in the foreground amongst those who are merry and content. I'm sure we're going to be a very happy family, and most certainly we shall be healthy and well cared for. With all regards and hopes that you will not allow yourself to be worried until your good man comes safely home again. your sincerely, R. Scott. End quote. I said my goodbyes after an early tea to the fellows of the Terra Nova and also to the eastern party. The lieutenant saw me over the side and I went away with a big lump in my throat. Then Nelson and I took a ten-foot sledge with five hundred and thirty pounds of fodder on it, rather too heavy a load, but it all helped, and the sea ice surface was none too bad. We did not get to camp until ten thirty-five p.m. Mears, with his usual good-heartedness, came out from the tent and helped us in for the last miles or so. He had driven the dogs out with another load after tea time, and Uncle Bill had a fine penecon supper awaiting for us. My job kept me in camp the next day to adjust the odolites, but the rest of the party went out to bring the final relay of depot stores from the Terra Nova. During the following days, we relayed the depot stuff along to a position near the edge of the barrier, and whilst so engaged, most of us found time to visit Hut Point. While Captain Scott was selecting the position for dumping a quantity of compressed fodder bales, the remainder of the party dug the snow out of an old hut left by the discovery in 1904. It looked a very deserted place, and the difference between the two winter quarters, Hut Point and Cape Evans, was amazing. One could quite understand the first expedition here selecting Hut Point for its natural harbour, but for comfort and freedom from unwelcome squalls and unpleasant gusts of wind, recommend me to Cape Evans. Never in my life have I seen anything quite so dreary and desolate as this locality, practically surrounded by high hills, little sunshine could get to the hut, which was built in a hollow. Of course, we saw the place at its worst, for the best summer months had long passed. The hut itself had been erected as a magnetic observatory, and it contrasted shabbily with our fifty foot by twenty five foot palace. We did not finish clearing the snow away, although with so many willing workers we made considerable progress. In parts, the midsummer sun had melted the snow, which in turn had refrozen into blue ice, and this we found troublesome because the slender woodwork of the hut would not stand any heavy pickwork. We christened a place on the barrier edge Fodder Camp and it was the general opinion that we could risk leaving the bales of hay here until the depot stuff had been taken south. Accordingly, all the more important stores were relayed on January the 29th to a position two miles in from the barrier edge. Whilst doing this relay work, I went in with Mears to Hart Point to bring out some 250 pounds of dog biscuit, and our dogs, being very fresh, scented a seal took charge of the light sledge and, in spite of all the breaking and obstructing Mears and I put up, the dogs went wildly forward until they reached the seal. The second they came to it, Mears and I found ourselves in the midst of a snapping, snarling and biting mixture, with a poor seal floundering underneath. While we were beating the dogs off, the seal bit Mears in the leg. He looked awfully surprised and showed great forbearance in not giving the seal one for himself with the iron-shod brake stick I never saw anybody less vicious in nature than Mother Mears. He never knocked the dogs about unless it was absolutely necessary. Even Osman, the wild wolf-like king dog, showed affection for him. Whilst moving the sledging stores to safety camp as we called the depot two miles in, we came across two tents left by Shackleton two or three years before. They contained a few stores and a primus stove, which proved to be the most useful later on. On January the 30th and 31st, we completed the depot at safety camp and then reorganised the depot party owing to Atkinson's developing a very sore heel, which made it impossible for him to accompany us. It did not matter very much because we had heaps of people to work the depot-laying journey, only it meant a disappointment for Atkinson, which he took to heart very much. The question of sledging experience made us wish to have Atkinson on this trip, but he gained it a few weeks later. Accordingly, I took over Cream's pony, Blossom, whilst he took charge of our sick man and returned him to Hut Point. Scott himself took Atkinson's pony, and on the 2nd of February the caravan proceeded in a east-southeast direction to make for a point in approximately 78 degrees south, 169 degrees east. Most of the ponies had 600-pound leads on their sledges, Mia's dog team 750, and Wilson's 600. We found the surface very bad, most of the ponies sinking deep in the snow. After doing roughly five miles, we halted and had a meal. Oates was called into our tent and consulted with a view to bettering the conditions for the ponies. As a result, it was decided to march by night and rest during the day when the sun would be higher and the air warmer. There was quite a drop in temperature between noon and midnight, and it was natural to suppose that we should get better and harder surfaces with the sun at its lower altitude. We still, of course, had the sun above the horizon for the full 24 hours, and should have had for three weeks yet. The choice was altogether a wise one, and we therefore turned in during the afternoon and remained in our sleeping bags until 10pm, when we arose and cooked our breakfast. Camp was broken at midnight and the march was resumed. For three hours we plodded along, a little leg-weary perhaps on account of the unusual time for marching and working physically. We had lunch about 3am and rested the ponies for a couple of hours. The surface was still very bad, the ponies labouring heavily. My own animal, Blossom, suffered through his hooves being very small, so that he sank into the snow far more than did the other horses. It was on his account that we only covered nine miles. I did some surveying work after our 7.30am supper and turned in at 10 o'clock until 7pm. Captain Scott took over Cook in our tent and made the breakfast. For the next few days we continued marching over the Great Ice Barrier. The distances covered, depending on the condition of Blossom and another pony, Blücher. Both of these animals caused anxiety from the start and owing to their weakness, the depot-laying distances scarcely exceeded ten miles daily. There is nothing to be gained from a long description of this autumn journey. It was merely a record of patiently trudging and of carefully watching over the ponies. Generally speaking, the weather was not in our favour, the sky being frequently overcast and we experienced an unpleasant amount of low drift. February 5th and 6th were blizzard days, during which no move could be made and it was not until 11pm on the 7th that the hard wind took off and the snow ceased to drift about us. The blizzards were not serious, but were quite sufficient to try the ponies severely. Blossom and Blucher and a third animal, James Pig, could in no way keep up with the van, although their loads were lightened considerably. The blue jackets Ford and Keyhone showed extraordinary aptitude in handling the ponies, but in spite of their efforts, the animals were quite done up by February the 12th, as was Old Blossom. It would have been cruel to continue with them, they were so wasted, and even their eyes were dull and lustreless. Accordingly, Scott decided to send Blucher, James Pig and Blossom back with Ford, Keirhain and myself. A reorganisation was made near the 79th parallel, and whilst the main party proceeded southward, Ford, Keirhain and I took our feeble ponies northward with the intention of getting them to Hut Point before the temperature fell, until the cold would be too great for them to stand. It was annoying for me to be sent back. Still, there was plenty of survey work to be done between the turning point and safety camp. Blucher failed from the start, and lay down in the snow directly the depot party left us. Ford lifted him up, but his legs were limp and would not support him. We rubbed the poor pony's legs and did what we could for him. Poor old Ford being practically in tears over this little beast. To give one an idea of this wretched animal's condition, when it was decided to kill him for humanity's sake and his throat was cut by Keir with a sailor's knife, there was hardly any blood to let out. It was a rotten day for all three of us. Blowing too hard to travel until very late and a second pony, Blossom, was doing his best to die. We made some little way homeward, Keirhain, James Peak and myself pulling the sledge with our gear on it, and Ford lifting and carrying and pushing Blossom along. I felt I ought to kill this animal, but I knew how angry and disappointed Scott would be at the loss, so kept him going although he showed so much distress. It was surprising what spirit the little brute had. If we started to march away, Blossom staggered along after us, looking like a spectre against the white background of snow. We kept on giving him up and making to kill him, but he actually struggled on for over 30 miles before falling down and dying in his tracks. We built a snow cairn over him and planted what pony food we had no further use for on top of the cairn. The third pony, James Pig, was kept fit and snug under a big snow wall whenever we were not marching and he won home to safety camp with very little trouble, frequently covering distances equal to our own marching capability. Once safety camp had been regained, we got good weather again, and James Pig became quite frisky, ate all that we could give him, and to our delight, his eyes regained their brightness, and he began to put on flesh. And now it's time to listen to some silence. For the remainder of the afternoon, "'John's silence disappeared. "'I had my suspicions that he made a secret visit to the plantation "'and also to the laundry building, "'but in any case we saw nothing of him, "'and he kept strictly to himself. "'He was preparing for the night, I felt sure, "'but the nature of his preparations I could only guess. "'There was movement in his room, I heard, "'and an odour like incense hung about the door.' and knowing that he regarded rights as the vehicles of energies, my guesses were probably not far wrong. Colonel Rage, too, remained absent the greater part of the afternoon, and deeply affected had scarcely left his sister's bedside, but in response to my inquiry when we met for a moment at tea-time, he told me that although she had moments of attempted speech, her talk was quite incoherent and hysterical, and she was still quite unable to explain the nature of what she had seen. The doctor, he said, feared she had recovered the use of her limbs, only to lose that of her memory, and perhaps even of her mind. Then the recovery of her legs, I trust, may be permanent at any rate, I ventured, finding it difficult to know what sympathy to offer, and he replied with a curious, short laugh, Oh yes, about that there can be no doubt whatever and it was due merely to the chance of my overhearing a fragment of conversation, unwillingly, of course, that a little further light was thrown upon the state in which the old lady actually lay. For as I came out of my room, it happened that Colonel Rage and the doctor were going downstairs together, and their words floated up to my ears before I could make my presence known by so much as a cough. Then you must find a way, the doctor was saying with decision, for I cannot insist too strongly upon that, and at all costs she must be kept quiet. These attempts to go out must be prevented, if necessary by force. This desire to visit some wood or other she keeps talking about is of course hysterical in nature. It cannot be permitted for a moment. It shall not be permitted, I heard the soldier reply as they reached the hall below. It has impressed her mind for some reason. The doctor went on by way, evidently, of soothing explanation, and then the distance made it impossible for me to hear more. At dinner, Dr. Silence was still absent, on the public plea of a headache, and though food was sent to his room, I'm inclined to believe he did not touch it, but spent the entire time fasting. We retired early, desiring that the household should do likewise, and I must confess that at ten o'clock when I bid my host a temporary good night. I sought my room to make what mental preparations I could. I realised in no very pleasant fashion that it was a singular and formidable assignation, this midnight meeting in the laundry building, and that there were moments in every adventure of life when a wise man, and one who knew his own limitations, owed it to his dignity to withdraw discreetly. And but for the character of our leader I probably should have then and there offered the best excuse I could think of, and have allowed myself quietly to fall asleep, to wait for an exciting story in the morning of what had happened. But with a man like John silence, such a lapse was out of the question, and I sat before my fire, counting the minutes, and doing everything I could think of to fortify my resolution, and to fasten my will at the point where I could reasonably be sure that my self-control would hold against all attacks of men. Devils! or elementals. At a quarter before midnight, clad in a heavy ulster and with slippered feet, I crept cautiously from my room and stole down the passage to the top of the stairs. Outside the doctor's door I waited a moment to listen. All was still, the house in utter darkness, no gleam of light beneath any door, only down the length of the corridor from the direction of the sick room where came faint sounds of laughter and incoherent talk that were not things to reassure a mind already half a tremble. But I made haste to reach the hall, and to let myself out through the front door into the night. The air was keen and frosty, perfumed with night smells and exquisitely fresh. All the million candles of the sky were alight, and a faint breeze rose and fell with a far away sighing in the tops of the pine trees. My blood leapt for a moment in the spaciousness of the night, for the splendid stars brought courage. But the next instant as I turned the corner of the house, moving stealthily along the gravel drive, my spirit sank again ominously. For yonder, over the funeral plumes of the twelve-acre plantation, I saw the broken yellow disk of the half-moon just rising in the east, staring down like some vast being, come to watch upon the progress of our doom. Seen through the distorting vapours of the earth's atmosphere, her face looked weirdly unfamiliar, her usual expression of benignant vacancy somehow a twist. I slipped along by the shadows of the wall, keeping my eyes upon the ground. The laundry house, as already described, stood detached from the other offices, with laurel shrubberies crowding thickly behind it, and the kitchen garden so close on the other side that the strong smells of soil and "'growing things came across almost heavily. "'The shadows of the haunted plantation, "'hugely lengthened by the rising moon behind them, "'reached to the very walls "'and covered the stone tiles of the roof "'with a dark pall. "'So keenly were my senses alert at this moment "'that I believe I could fill a chapter "'with the endless small details "'of the impression I received. "'Shadows, odour, sounds, shapes... In the space of a few seconds, I stood and waited before this closed wooden door. Then I became aware of someone moving towards me through the moonlight, and the figure of John Silence, without overcoat and bareheaded, came quickly and without noise to join me. His eyes, at once, I saw, were wonderfully bright, and so marked was the shining pallor of his face that I could hardly tell when he had passed from the moonlight into the shade. He passed without a word beckoning me to follow and then pushed the door open and went in. The chill air of the place met us like that of an underground vault, and the brick floor and whitewashed walls streaked with damp and smoke threw back the cold in our faces. Directly opposite gaped the black throat of the huge open fireplace, the ashes of wood fire still piled and scattered about the hearth, and on either side of the projecting chimney column With the deep recesses holding the big twin cauldrons for boiling clothes. Upon the lids of these cauldrons stood the two little oil lamps, shaded red, which gave all the light there was, and immediately in front of the fireplace there was a small circular table with three chairs set about it. Overhead, the narrow slit windows high up on the walls pointed to a dim network of wooden rafters half lost amongst the shadows, and then came the dark vault of the roof cheerless and unalluring for all the red light it certainly was, reminding me of some unused conventicle, bare of pews or pulpit, ugly, severe, and I was forcibly struck by the contrast between the normal uses to which the place was ordinarily put and the strange and medieval purpose which had brought us under its roof tonight. Possibly an involuntary shudder ran over me, for my companion turned with a confident look to reassure me, and he was so completely master of himself that I at once absorbed from his abundance and felt the chinks of my failing courage beginning to close up. To meet his eye in the presence of danger was like finding a metal railing that guided and supported through along the giddy edges of alarm. I'm quite ready, I whispered, turning to listen for approaching footsteps. He nodded, still keeping his eyes on mine. Our whispers sounded hollow as they echoed overhead amongst the rafters. I'm glad you're here, he said. Not all would have the courage. Keep your thoughts controlled and imagine the protective shell round you, round your inner being. I'm all right, I repeated, cursing my chattering teeth. He took my hand, shook it, and the contact seemed to shake into me something of his supreme confidence. The eyes and hands of a strong man can touch the soul. I think he guessed my thought, for a passing smile flashed about the corners of his mouth. You will feel more comfortable, he said in a low tone, when the chain is complete. The colonel we can count on, of course. Remember, though, he added warningly, he may perhaps become controlled or possessed when the thing comes, but he won't know how to resist and to explain the business to such a man. He shrugged his shoulders expressively. But it will be only temporary, and I will see that no harm comes to him. He glanced round at the arrangements with approval. Red light, he said, indicating the shaded lamps, has the lowest rate of vibration. Materializations are dissipated by strong light, won't form or hold together in rapid vibrations. I was not sure that I approved altogether of this dim light, for in complete darkness there is something protective, the knowledge that one cannot be seen, probably, which is a half-light destroying. But I remembered the warning to keep my thoughts steady, and forbore to give them expression. There was a step outside, and the figure of Colonel Rage stood in the doorway. Though entering on tiptoe, he made considerable noise and clatter for his free movements were impeded by the burden he carried, and we saw a large yellowish bowl held out at arm's length from his body, the mouth covered with a white cloth. His face, I noted, was rigidly composed. He too was master of himself. And as I thought of this old soldier moving through the long series of alarms, worn with watching and wearied with assault, unlightened yet undismayed, even down to the dreadful shock of his sister's terror, and still showing what dogged pluck that persists in the face of defeat. I understood what Dr. Silence meant when he described him as a man to be counted on. I think there was nothing beyond this rigidity of his stern features, and a certain greyness of the complexion to betray the turmoil of the emotions that were doubtless going on within, and the quality of these two men, each in his own way, so keyed me up that by the time the door was shut, and we had exchanged silent greetings, All the latent courage I possessed was well to the fore, and I felt as sure of myself as I knew I could ever be. Colonel Rage set the bowl carefully in the centre of the table. Midnight, he said shortly, glancing at his watch, and we all three moved to our chairs. There, in the middle of that cold and silent place, we sat, with a vile bowl before us, and a thin, hardly perceptible steam rising through the damp air from the surface of the white cloth, and disappearing upwards the moment it passed beyond the zone of red light and entered the deep dark thrown forward by the projecting wall of the chimney. The doctor had indicated our respective places, and I found myself seated with my back to the door and opposite the black hearth. The colonel was on my left and Dr. Silence on my right, both half facing me, the latter more in shadow than the former. We thus divided the little table into even sections, and sitting back in our chairs we awaited events in silence. For something like an hour, I do not think there was even the faintest sound within those four walls and under the canopy of that vaulted roof. Our slippers made no scratching on the gritty floor, and our breathing was suppressed almost to nothing. Even the rustle of our clothes as we shifted from time to time upon our seats was inaudible. Silence smothered us absolutely the silence of night, of listening, the silence of a haunted expectancy. The very gurgling of the lamps was too soft to be heard, and if light itself had sound, I do not think we should have noticed the silvery tread of the moonlight as it traced the high narrow windows and threw upon the floor the slender traces of its pallid footsteps. Colonel Rage, and the doctor, and myself too, for that matter, sat thus like figures of stone, without speech and without gesture. My eyes passed in ceaseless journeys from the bowl to their faces, and from their faces to the bowl. They might have been masks, however, for all the signs of life they gave, and the light steaming from the horrid contents beneath the white cloth had long since ceased to be visible. Then presently, as the moon rose higher, the wind rose with it. It sighed, like the lightest of passing wings over the roof. It crept most softly round the walls. It made the brick floor like ice beneath our feet. With it I saw mentally the desolate moorland flowing like a sea about the old house, the treeless expanse of lonely hills, the nearer copses, sombre and mysterious in the night. The plantation, too, in particular, I saw. "'and I imagined I heard the mournful whisperings "'that must now be a-stirring amongst its treetops "'as the breeze played down between the twisted stems. "'In the depth of the room behind us "'the shafts of moonlight met and crossed in a growing network. "'It was an hour of this wearying and unbroken attention, "'and I should judge about one o'clock in the morning, "'when the baying of the dogs in the stable-yard first began and I saw John silence move suddenly in his chair and sit up in an attitude of attention. Every force in my being instantly leapt into the keenest vigilance. Colonel Rage moved too, though slowly, and without raising his eyes from the table before him. The doctor stretched his arm out and took the white cloth from the bowl. It was perhaps imagination that persuaded me the red glare of the lamps grew fainter and the air over the table before us thickened. I had been expecting something for so long that the movement of my companions and the lifting of the cloth may easily have caused the momentary delusion that something hovered in the air before my face, touching the skin of my cheeks with a silken run. But it was certainly not a delusion that the colonel looked up at the same moment and glanced over his shoulder as though his eyes followed the movements of something to and fro about the room, and that he then buttoned his overcoat more tightly about him and his eyes sought my own face first, and then the doctor's. And it was no delusion that his face seemed somehow to have turned dark, become spread as it were with a shadowy blackness. I saw his lips tighten and his expression grow hard and stern, and it came to me then with a rush that of course this man had told us but a part of the experiences he had been through in the house, and that there was much more he had never been able to bring himself to reveal at all. I felt sure of it. The way he turned and stared about him betrayed a familiarity with other things than those he had described to us. It was not merely a sight of fire he looked for. It was the sight of a something alive, intelligent, something able to evade his searching. It was a person, It was the watch for the ancient being who sought to obsess him. And the way in which Dr. Silence answered his look, though it was only by a glance of subtlest sympathy, confirmed my impression. We may be ready now, I heard him say in a whisper, and I understood that his words were intended as a steadying warning and braced myself mentally to the utmost of my power. Yet long before Colonel Rage had turned to stare about the room, and long before the doctor had confirmed my impression that things were at last beginning to stir, I had become aware in a most singular fashion that the place held more than our three selves. With the rising of the wind this increase to our numbers had first taken place. The bang of the hounds almost seemed to have signalled it. I cannot say how it may be possible to realise that an empty place has suddenly become not empty, when the new arrival is nothing that appeals to any of the senses. For this recognition of an invisible, as of change in the balance of personal forces in a human group, is indefinable and beyond proof. Yet it is unmistakable. And I knew perfectly well at what given moment the atmosphere within these four walls became charged with the presence of other living beings besides ourselves. And on reflection... I am convinced that both my companions knew it too. Watch the light, said the doctor under his breath, and then I knew too that it was no fancy of my own that had turned the air darker, and the way he turned to examine the face of our host sent an electric thrill of wonder and expectancy shivering along every nerve in my body. Yet it was no kind of terror that I experienced, but rather a sort of mental dizziness, and a sensation as of being suspended in some remote and dreadful altitude, where things might happen, indeed were about to happen, that had never before happened within the ken of man. Horror may have formed an ingredient, but it was not chiefly horror, and in no sense a ghostly horror. Uncommon thoughts kept beating on my brain like tiny hammers, soft yet persistent, seeking admission their unbidden tide began to wash along the far fringes of my mind, the currents of unwanted sensations to rise over the remote frontiers of my consciousness. I was aware of thoughts, and of fantasies of thoughts, that I knew never before existed, portions of my being being stirred that had never stirred before, and things ancient and inexplicable rose to the surface and beckoned me to follow. I felt as though I were about to fly off at some immense tangent into an outer space hitherto unknown even in dreams. And so singular was this result produced upon me that I was uncommonly glad to anchor my mind as well as my eyes upon the masterful personality of the doctor at my side. For there, I realised, I could draw always upon the forces of sanity and safety. With a vigorous effort of will, I returned to the scene before me, and tried to focus my attention with steadier thoughts upon the table and upon the silent figures seated around it. And then I saw that certain changes had come about in the place where we sat. And that's all for today. Except to remind you about my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books as I record them. At the moment, I'm recording a naval history on the War of 1812, also Space Viking by H. Beam Piper, and the final volume of Charles Oman's History of the Peninsula War. And, as a bit of a side job, I'm also narrating the full rules to the role-playing game called Basic Fantasy Role-Playing Game. Please, go to Patreon.com and search for Felbrick. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Until next time.